What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Ora Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The ruling party in Poland has passed a law that looks to be a way to root out malign Russian influence in the country's politics. But many Poles and Eurocrats reckon the party's real intent is to stifle opposition candidates ahead of an election later this year. Japan's aging society means that they're having more and more funerals. Traditionally, people have opted for burying cremated ashes. But as gravesites run out of space, a more creative option is surging in popularity. But first... For years... Imran Khan, a former prime minister of Pakistan and a legendary cricketer, has rarely been out of the country's news. Until now. Reports suggest that military leaders who orchestrate Pakistan's politics have ordered the local media to end all coverage of Mr Khan. And yet, he is still the country's most newsworthy figure. More than once, his supporters have marched on Islamabad, protesting his ousting from power in 2022. He's been shot while out campaigning. In the last month, he's been arrested, imprisoned and released by a court order. Mr. Khan thinks the military is out to get him. I think they will, the whole charade of military courts is to imprison me in the end. But in attempting to silence him, Pakistan's military leaders are once again underlining their own long-standing, destructive political incompetence. This apparent media blackout in terms of reporting on Imran Khan, allegedly at the direct command of the army, is absolutely illustrative of its habitual intervention into Pakistani politics. James Astor is The Economist's Asia editor. Pakistan should be heading towards a parliamentary election, general election in a few months' time. But that schedule and actually the politics of the whole country have been tipped upside down by a major political crisis involving the arrest of Imran Khan, now an apparent attempt to dismantle his party by the government and the army that backs the current government. So the most popular politician in the country and his party appear now to be unable to contest these elections if the elections are even held. Great deal of uncertainty in in, in Pakistani politics right now. Tell us a bit more about that. 
The background is Imran Khan, a hugely charismatic, popular figure in Pakistan before he went into politics as the country's greatest cricketer. So he rode into politics with a great wave of, of public support. And the army, which tends to pull the strings in Pakistani politics, got on side with Imran Khan. The generals thought that he was a man that would do their bidding in power. But as prime minister between 2018 and last year, Imran Khan became increasingly independent-minded, critical of army control in Pakistan, fell out with the generals. And this led to his ejection from power last year after a no-confidence vote of the Pakistani parliament. And ever since then, Imran has been machinating against the government. Um, He claims that his ejection from power was illegitimate, fulminating against the army in a way that's quite unique in Pakistan. We've not seen this open political defiance towards the army and its enormous control over the country and its politics before. And that has culminated in this latest upheaval, a very dramatic, apparent army intervention into the country's politics, almost as naked as a military coup, we might say, in the dismantling of the country's most popular party and the invalidation of its leader. Imran Khan's been charged with dozens of offences, is under arrest, charged with corruption, amongst many other things. And this is a power play by the army through the current civilian government that replaced Imran Khan. We'll have to see how it plays out. Now, James, why does the army have such a hold over Pakistan's politics? The answer to that comes right down to the sort of ideas behind Pakistan's founding, really, which was in opposition to a Hindu-dominated India. And the feelings of insecurity that that engendered in the new Muslim-dominated state of Pakistan were profound and led to this neurotic national security footing that the country has been on pretty much since its founding, ostensibly to defend the state of Pakistan from India. That national security basis has been the pretext for the Pakistani army claiming supremacy as the only competent and legitimate arbiters of Pakistani power and therefore claiming to have the whip hand in Pakistani politics, government formation on a national security pretext. So they have at times ruled nakedly themselves. And when the army hasn't been ruling directly, they have been behind the scenes orchestrating civilian governments, deciding who was in, who was out, who was rising, who was falling. And what we're seeing is a particularly flagrant example of that right now in the ejection of Imran Khan and now this attack upon his party. You mentioned earlier that Imran Khan is the most popular politician in Pakistan. Do you think he deserves to be so popular? In one sense, Imran Khan doesn't deserve his great popularity at all. He was a terrible prime minister. He was a populist who grandstanded against the institutions of the country, attacked his democratic rivals, um, attacked the, the, the press, appointed a pretty dubious cabinet. So he doesn't deserve popularity based on his record in government. And he wasn't particularly popular towards the end of his time as prime minister because his government had performed so badly. He has been reborn politically because of his opposition to the army in large part. And that is a justified position. It's outrageous that Pakistani generals presume to influence the country's politics in this way. And it's understandable that there should be this groundswell 
of support for Imran Khan on that basis. It's a very dangerous, possibly unprecedented situation that the Pakistani military finds itself in. And just coming back to the Pakistani military, how has that overreach affected the country economically? The perpetual instability in Pakistani politics that this behind-the-curtain management by the army has produced has been disastrous for policymaking across the board. No Pakistani prime minister has yet seen through a five-year term, and that is largely because of this meddling by the Pakistani military. So the short-termism that that has engendered in Pakistani civilian political parties is profound. The consequences of that misrule in Pakistan are so graphic, so manifest. And I think one way of thinking about that is in terms of the comparison between India and Pakistan. And as recently as 1990, Pakistanis were per capita as rich as Indians were. The Pakistani military was somehow competitive with the Indian military. But Indians are now one and a half times richer than Pakistanis. India's power is now one of the great moving plates in geopolitics, whereas Pakistan is increasingly seen as a global problem, as a poor, unstable, nuclear-armed country with terrible politics, which make it unpredictable and a worry. James, in your view, what's next? We've got a popular politician and a powerful meddling military. Do you see the situation coming down anytime soon? I think we need to strap in for more turbulence in Pakistani politics. That seems clear. There's tremendous uncertainty about whether the scheduled election will be held, whether some version of Imran Khan's party will be allowed to contest those elections if they're held. I think it seems very unlikely that Imran Khan himself will be permitted to contest those elections. There's now just too much legal weight against him. He faces more than 100 charges of corruption, other things, treason, talk of blasphemy charges against him. It seems very, very unlikely that those could be unwound. It seems unlikely that the Pakistani military, having moved so strongly against him, could now leave the job half-finished, so to speak. So these are very uncertain times in Pakistani politics. And though Imran Khan's supporters are somewhat cowed currently, are not daring to take to the streets in support of him because they fear reprisals by the military, I don't think we can take that for granted. Imran Khan is a very charismatic, popular figure in Pakistan's teeming cities. And I think that there is real potential for unrest around this latest crisis. James, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Few countries have proved their alliance with Ukraine as much as Poland has. 
millions of Ukrainian refugees have been welcomed as they flooded across their neighbor's border. Poland's request to be able to export its stash of German-built Leopard tanks forced the German Chancellor's hand in doing the same. So when the ruling Law and Justice Party put forward a new law claiming to root out Russian influence within Poland, it should have come as no surprise. But many Poles weren't buying it. And last weekend, in the capital Warsaw, more than half a million people protested against the law. The European Union's executive body has taken notice too, and not for the first time is challenging the legality of the ruling party's intentions. It seems clear that the law could have effects far beyond those that the party is claiming. But what the law is intended to do is to help to purge Poland of what is thought to be Russian influence. Max Rodenbeck is The Economist's Berlin bureau chief. There was supposedly a great deal of underhanded Russian influence in Poland between 2014 and 2022. In particular, there was supposedly Russian involvement in, say, privatization schemes. And it has been rumored and said that previous governments were responsible for making deals with Russia, particularly regarding energy. But the problem is that many people don't think that this law will be used for that stated purpose. So before we get to the possible uses of the law, let's talk about its substance. How is it supposed to achieve its aims? Well, the law creates a commission, a nine-person state commission, to investigate these supposed cases of Russian influence. And the ruling party, the Law and Justice Party, their spokesmen say that this panel is needed to foster transparency, to strengthen the country at a time of heightened threat, which is, of course, the war in next-door Ukraine. But the commission won't be independent in any way. Its members will be selected by the parliament, which is dominated by the ruling party, of course, and its chair will be appointed by the prime minister, who is also a member of the ruling party. And this commission will have access to all secret documents, secret records from every agency in Poland. Its deliberations can be held behind closed doors, so it's not transparent in its own operations. Its members will be immune from prosecution. And perhaps one most troubling is that the definition of what Russian influence is, is extremely vague. It's not particularly defined what they mean by Russian influence. So the commission has the power to overturn any kind of administrative decision that was previously made that it finds might have been made under Russian influence. And it can also bar from public office any person it says helped Russia for up to 10 years. So it's a commission essentially run by the ruling party with enormous power and not a whole lot of accountability. Exactly. I mean, the fear among the opposition, and not just the Polish opposition, but more widely, including among legal experts and so on, is that the law could easily be misused to bash or to ban its opponents. I mean, if they can ban anyone from public office for up to 10 years, that means that essentially any political opponent can be denied a place in government before an election, for example. And it just so happens that we are only months before a very important election, the national elections in Poland, which are scheduled for the fall. So Polish voters will pronounce their own judgment on the ruling party's time in office. But this commission has the potential to interfere directly in that election. And it's not just the opposition that says so. There was actually an opinion poll that was released on the 29th of May, which found that 61% of polls seemed to think that the law was, quote unquote, a pre-election ploy to discredit political opponents. And do voters have reason to believe that that's how the law might be used? I mean, are they suspicious then of the ruling party and what it might do? 
Well, they really do, because if you just follow the words of, for example, Yaroslav Kaczynski, who's the chairman of the ruling Law and Justice Party, in the past, he's actually labeled uh, prominent opposition politicians traitors and stooges. And he appears to have a particular grudge against Donald Tusk, who heads the country's biggest opposition party, which is called the Civic Platform, and who served as prime minister between 2007 and 2014. And it was just, it was during that time of office for Mr. Tusk that Mr. Kaczynski's brother, who at the time was Poland's president, happened to have died in a very tragic plane crash near the Russian city of Smolensk, along with 95 other people. This is a giant tragedy, the death of Poland's president at the time. But for over a decade, his brother, who is now the chairman of the party, and many of his fellow politicians in the party have propounded a conspiracy theory, which is that Russia was behind this plane crash. And worse than that, they've accused Mr. Tusk, their opponent, of complicity in a cover-up during his term of office. So there is a record of accusing their political opponents of being under some kind of Russian influence already. And now we have a commission that's supposed to investigate that. So it's not surprising that other people, and it's not simply the opposition, are worried about it. And those worried include the European Commission and the State Department in the United States. So we've talked a lot about the means. You, you've hinted somewhat at a motive. But does the ruling party need this ahead of the election you mentioned? What's really at stake here? Well, many people that I've spoken to in Warsaw say that the upcoming election is really about the most consequential that Poland will face since the end of communism in 1990. It's supposed to be held between mid-October and, and mid-November, so it's a pretty short run-up to the election. And most observers expect that the election is going to be a particularly close one. So it's both highly contested and it's likely to be very close. But the playing field is not particularly even already, even before this new law and the creation of this new commission. Since coming to power in 2015, the ruling party has turned the state broadcasting system into a kind of propaganda outlet. It's packed the country's top courts. It's tried to take over the judicial system, in effect. But at the same time, it's overseen one of Europe's strongest economic growth stories. And there's been a big surge in Polish national pride in response to the Ukraine crisis because Poland has really stood up to be one of the most passionate and meaningful supporters of its neighboring country against the Russian invasion. So feelings are running very high in Poland, and this is a really crucial election. At the same time, the opposition is already rather badly fragmented. So this leaves Poland in a difficult situation. And, you know, it's kind of sad that, ironically, for a law that was supposedly intended to purge the country of Russian influence, this law that's been brought in the commission really has distinctly Stalinist overtones. There's a real worry that it will actually stifle Polish democracy rather than help it to prosper. Max, thanks very much for joining us. You're welcome, Jason. A few months ago, I went to a balloon funeral for the first time in my life. Murka Ida writes about Japan for The Economist. I met this family called the Sakoshitas, and they were holding the funeral for their late father, Haruhiko, and also their late family dog, Fuchang. I saw the family pouring the ashes into this a huge red balloon. Hey. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
there was a string attaching it to the ground. And then one of the family members cut the string. Family members looked up and waved at the balloon and they kept looking at it until it disappeared into the clouds. Ceremonies like these have become increasingly popular in Japan these days. And why is that? So in Japan, traditionally, people are cremated after death and then their ashes are buried. But because of Japan's aging society and also city areas are getting crowded, it's becoming trickier and less desirable to perform traditional funerals. And the death rate in Japan is soaring. Japan saw 1.5 million deaths in 2022, which is the highest figure since the Second World War. City areas are running out of space. There's not enough room in grave sites. And also society is becoming more secular. So as a result of that, rituals surrounding death in Japan are changing. So this balloon funeral I went to was invented in 2011 by a Japanese firm called Balloon Kobo, which has a patent for this method. And it says it performed 300 balloon funerals to date. And what other kinds of ceremonies are there? So cremation is still the norm in Japan, but there's more variation in terms of what to do with the ashes afterwards. There's a method called tree burials, where the buried ashes are marked by a tree instead of a traditional gravestone. And this method is actually quite popular. A survey showed that half of those who purchased graves in 2022 chose tree burial sites instead of graves. And another way is to simply scatter the ashes in the sea or mountains. This used to be frowned upon in Japan, but it's becoming more accepted. And these alternative or somewhat hippie methods seem to suggest that people are increasingly drawn to this idea of becoming one with nature. And I do think it's partly about this shift in personal preference, but a big reason behind these changes is financial constraints. So traditional gravestones are quite expensive. It usually costs about a million yen, which is over $7,000. So these new and alternative methods are much cheaper and they help save money. A lot of people I interviewed for this story said something like, people don't want to bother their children after they die. And that's why they're looking for methods that are less costly and less troublesome. Okay, so it makes sense then that these new methods would become this popular, but what does this mean for traditional funerals? Traditional Japanese funerals are very long. There's a wake and then a funeral service over the course of days. And even when people stick to the old ways, the size and duration of funerals are shrinking because of demographic changes like population decline. People in Japan live into their 80s or 90s, they live until they're very old, so they've often outlived a lot of their friends or relatives. They naturally don't have that many people to invite to their funerals, so the size of funerals are shrinking in that sense. And it seems like people are also keen to keep funerals simple, so they might combine the different rituals like the wake and the funeral service into a single day or skip certain steps. In some extreme cases, people are just cremated and then they don't have any kind of funeral or ceremony to follow up. Marika, that's quite a big shift in culture you're talking about here. Yes, the shape and form of funerals are changing drastically. And I feel like that's also changing the conversation about death or how people view death and 
feel about it. It seems like back in the day, people didn't talk about death so openly, but it's becoming less taboo. As in, when you have a growing number of funeral options, you naturally have to talk about your funeral when you're alive. And there's also a new Japanese term called shukatsu. It means death planning. It combines the Chinese characters and an activity. It includes funeral planning, but also making requests before you die. In the case of Sakashita Haruhiko, I spoke to his wife at the balloon funeral. And she said, when my husband was alive, he wanted to fly in the sky. I also spoke to their eldest son, Kohei, who said, we knew what our father wanted and we wanted to respect that. So for the Sakashita family, there was nothing more exciting and fitting than a balloon funeral. America, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, what are you waiting for? Dive in. Get a free 30-day digital subscription by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.